I can remember back when I was in seminary, I heard about a, a group of theologians that I think they were back in the 12th century and they were having this debate about whether or not angels took up any physical space whatsoever. Maybe you've heard this debate and, and one of them uh, asked the question, how many, how many angels could dance on the head of a pen? Yeah, have, you, have you thought about that recently? I, I don't know why. First of all, I don't know the answer to the question. Uh, secondly, I don't even know why they asked the question. Now, they still let me graduate, but I, I, thankfully there were other things there that I think were of more importance than, than, that, than that question. But maybe there have been some tough questions that you've uh, come across through, through your lifetime, and I was reflecting upon some recently, and maybe you've noticed that when you pick up a pack of gum and it says how many calories are on the side, like this, this serving size, this piece of gum is, is 10 calories. Have you ever wondered if that's just for chewing the gum or if that includes swallowing it? You know, I mean, if you're going to get 10 calories, how exactly do you get that from gum? Um, another one I, I, I came across, how, how can something be both new and improved? Because if it's, if it's new, can you really improve it, right? Here's another one. Do prison buses have emergency exits? Prison buses. Emer if anybody knows, let me know. I'd like, I'd like to know the answer. I'd also like to hear your story, right? Uh, just kind of see how you, how you know about that. Um, why is vanilla ice cream white and vanilla extract brown? Now, some of y'all may know that. I, I have no idea. One last one to think about. If you try to fail and succeed, which have you done? Tough questions, right? Well, I'm going to be preaching a series over the course of the summer on tough questions. Now, not necessarily those questions, but just tough questions about God, about life, about the Bible. We're going to take on a different question, Lord willing, each Sunday over the course of most of the summer. Um, this, uh, this series is going to be uh, encouraging us as a church to be prepared to have answers for the questions that are being asked. Now, there are questions in our world today that are being asked about life, about God. Uh, about, about God's Word. There are questions being raised within our own church. There are questions that our young people might, might have about, about walking with God and, and understanding what it means to follow Him. The, the, the goal of the summer will be to equip us, to prepare us with some answers to tough questions. Now, I, I started off by listing out a lot of questions that I thought would be relevant to today. Questions that, that we uh, may be wrestling with, that you might be wrestling with. And, and so, uh, so we'll be looking uh, at nine of them, and certainly there would be more than nine. Maybe there'll be another series down the road. But, uh, but I do think that we are in a day where there is a lot of dialogue, a lot of questions, a lot of discussion, uh, at times opposition. And so trying to understand how do we give an answer to those that, that hold different, a different worldview or a different view of God's Word? How, how do we prepare our young people so that they can be equipped to be able to, to navigate the, the cultural changes around us with the truth and wisdom of God's Word? How do we do that? Well, it's by not ignoring the hard questions, those subjects that, that sometimes may be a little uncomfortable. Uh, if we, as a church, suppress the questions when they're asked, 
If we ignore the difficult topics when they arise, what message does that send to our young people? What, 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 does, what, what place does that put them in? What position does that put them in as they leave and go into the world if, if all the hard questions have just been suppressed? They could, they could very easily turn into to doubts, right? Or, or, or outright unbelief. And so, so these questions that we'll be looking at, yes, I'd like for all of us to, to look to God's Word and to be, to be resolute that God's truth is absolute and it speaks even to the, the age in which we live. But I'm going to be directing a lot of this to encourage our young people, young people, young adults, students, that they, that they hopefully will, will resonate with some of these questions and feel more secure in their faith and feel like they know some places that they can go to in God's Word for answers. Because, again, if they don't find those answers while, while they're with us, what might they find down the road? We'll talk about that in a little more detail in a minute. We're going to begin in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, this is a book I'd love to preach through. You know, typically I like to, to preach, you know, a book at a time, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. In the summer months, sometimes we do things a little different. We know people are in and out, and so each message will stand on its own. But this book, First Peter, was written to believers who were uh, facing persecution. In fact, they were, they were living in a day in which the prevailing thinking around them did not agree with, with the Christian faith. And so they, they, had to, they had to be ready for that. They had to be equipped for that. And so you hear the, the words of, of Peter wanting to encourage them to stand firm, to be strong, to be resolute, to not retreat. In verse 13 of chapter 3, 1 Peter, he says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is that idea of of, of, of defending, of, of, of answering, of being ready to, to speak to the questions, the issues of the day. But, but we can't stop reading there because Peter has one other thing to say about it. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Yet, do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Sometimes that's hard to do. I don't, I don't see a lot of that on Twitter these days. Um, I see a lot of opinions, even about matters of the faith, but the idea of gentleness and respect, sometimes that's a, that's a, missing, a missing characteristic. Well, these words from Peter are vitally important today. If we as a church don't provide answers from God's Word uh, for the hope that we have in Christ, then people will indeed search elsewhere for answers. And the statistics are showing that that is indeed what is happening. Let me tell you a little bit about the generation known as millennials. Today, they are roughly ages 25 to 40 the millennial generation. I know that, that, the, that the students, young uh, uh, students in our, in, our, in our church, they would be obviously underneath the millennial generation, but we certainly have people in our congregation that are ages 25 to 40, millennials. One study said that they are leaving the church at an alarming rate. Here's the, here's the statistic. Of the millennials who were raised in church, 
How many do you think are still in church? Less than half. 40%. 60% have checked out. They, 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 they have walked away from church. Maybe not abandoned the faith altogether, though I'm sure some have. But only 40%. You know, as I thought about that number, I thought that might even be a bit generous. It, it, it may be more than 60% who have left. So, so let me ask you again, is it important that we, that we equip, that we provide answers? Because the questions are out there. Other answers are out there. The question is, will we? Will we take the time to consider these questions thoughtfully and winsomely? To do so with truth. To do so with respect. There's a term that is now being given to those who were raised as evangelicals but are no longer practicing believers. It's called ex-evangelicals. And it's like taking the, the word ex-evangelical and, and kind of shrinking it. Ex-evangelicals. And that's, that's becoming more and more common. And one of the reasons given by people who were at one time in the faith that are no longer in the faith is because their hard questions were not answered. They didn't feel that sufficient uh, time and attention was given to the answers that they have. And as I said a minute ago, when those questions aren't resolved, years later, after being suppressed and held back, they can come out in forms such as doubt and unbelief. So that's, that's the reason why I decided to preach a sermon series on tough questions. Um, We'll be looking at different questions, not necessarily in this order over the summer, but questions such as, is science the enemy of faith? What about Marxism? Is it compatible with the Christian faith? Is the Bible trustworthy? That may be one of the most foundational ones that we will look at. If we say we believe the Word of God and that we hold to its, to its teaching, why? Why can we? do that because, you know, students will, will leave home and they'll go into classrooms where people will say, wait a minute, why would you believe the Bible? Why would that be your authority? Why wouldn't this be or that be? So we have to have an answer. Then there's some difficult topics like, like the, 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 the place the Bible describes as hell. Is hell literal? How could a loving God send people to hell? That, that's going to be a tough one, isn't it? Now, don't worry, that, that one will be on a day where we have kids' church. I am trying to figure out the right day to ask which question to make sure we don't have people completely, completely uh, uh, frightened on these days. Um, here's another one. Are we sure that the Christian faith is the only way to God? Now, that, that's, that's a big one today because this idea that, that, that the exclusivity of the gospel means that, it, that through Christ is the only way? You're saying that the other faiths, the other belief systems, they can't get to God? That's, that's, the, that's what the Bible teaches. Are we, are we sure that we can say that with confidence? Another one, what does the Bible teach about gender and sexuality? Because we've seen so many, uh, so many dialogues, so many movements, so many changes in the way that our culture has responded to the, uh, the understanding of gender and sexuality. Well, what does the Bible say? How do, we, how do we approach a, a, a postmodern world that thinks differently than it did even a generation ago? These are just some of the questions, and, and uh, we'll be looking at, at each one week by week. And again, I pray that, that the Lord would use it 
as, as I said, maybe for some that, that, that we are uh, seeking to engage and speak with in our own community, but maybe for, for some of our students, it's a, it's a matter of equipping them so that they will be able to discern and, and feel, feel firm and settled in their faith as they themselves navigate life. Well, for today, here's the question that I'd like us to look at. Should the Christian faith be more progressive? Should the Christian faith be more progressive? And I, I wanted to start with this question because I think throughout the, 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 the coming weeks that, that many of the questions will point right back to this. In fact, the, the progressive Christian movement is responsible for raising a lot of the questions that we will be looking at in coming weeks. The progressive Christian approach to the Christian faith, I believe, is one of the greatest threats to today, to historic biblical faith, biblical doctrines. Because the progressive Christian movement is not happening in classrooms. It's not happening in other venues. You know where it's happening? It's happening in churches all across our country. And so if, if one doesn't know how to discern from a, from a church that is rooted in historical biblical faith, and a church that is being rooted in this new brand of progressive Christian understanding, if you want to call it that, um, you, can, you, you, can, you can very easily be drawn in to something that is, not, that is not firm, that is not true. And so in some ways, when I use that word progressive in the question, uh, in some ways it sounds good because don't we all want to progress, right? I mean, we, if we think about it from the idea of advancing, you know, we, we certainly want to advance. We don't want to regress, right? So, so progressive has kind of a nice ring to it until you see that that's not at all what the progressive Christianity movement has in mind. It's not about advancing in that way that we're thinking of it. What it means is that it's, it's adapting to the thinking of the day. And as we know, the thinking of the day is in a constant state of change. And so if we tether our spiritual beliefs to what is being thought of in our culture today, they will always be moving. They will always be progressing. They will always be changing. And we have within our country today a number of these churches that are indeed progressive Christian churches. So... Uh, that's what we're going to be examining today. Back in March, we studied the book of Jude, and you may remember uh, some of the verses we looked at at the very beginning. And in fact, I, I preached through the book of Jude as a way to, to, to help us prepare for this very series, because, because there is such a clear call in the book of Jude. I thought it would be helpful to recap it again this morning. Let's look at verse 3. Jude says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you, about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. The faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So here we see that, that, that Jude is, is describing what is our sacred duty. We have a responsibility as, as guardians of the truth that we would see that we must know what that faith is, what that truth is. 
The first point this morning is this. We must contend earnestly for the faith that comes right through out of verse 3. I want us to see, first of all, that, that when he mentions salvation, he says the salvation. Now that word in itself carries a lot of meaning. Because if, if salvation is necessary, that means that, that humanity must need to be saved from something. And if the Bible goes on to say that what we need to be saved from is the, the, the bondage of sin or the penalty of sin, that means that, that if salvation is necessary, that sin must exist. Now, for progressives, that, that opens up a whole can of worms, a big problem. Because if sin exists, what's the next question? What is sin? Who gets the right to decide what is sin and what's not? How do we determine right from wrong? See, that's where the progressives will, will certainly not emphasize the nature of sin or salvation for that matter. But yet here in Jude, it says that he, he wants to write about the salvation. And then later on, he says to contend for the faith. Now, the idea that it's not a faith, it's not the faith's plural, it's not some nebulous idea that we all should have faith in faith or something like that. I mean, we've heard all kinds of, of statements that are given these days that, that uh, connect to some form of spirituality, but, but this here is much more specific than that. He is clearly referencing the faith, so it begs the question then, what is the historic Christian faith. And I know you're thinking, well, wait a minute, right? I, I thought you said we were going to talk about, about whether progressive Christianity was something that was a threat. Well, we will. But in order to do that, we must know what it is that we're comparing it against. What is it that, that, that the progressive Christian, Christian movement is, is, is proclaiming must be compared against what we would consider to be the historic Christian faith? that yes, comes from the Word of God, but, but also was, was described by the, by the earliest of believers, going all the way back to the apostles, people like Peter and Paul, as they would go and, and teach and, and write, and, and then as, as early Christian theologians were, were, that, that had been in many times even, even uh, students of the apostles, they, are, they were assembling what would be the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so one, uh, many people have done this, but one in particular is Dr. Michael Kruger. He's written several books. I'm going to be referencing one of them uh, later in our series. Um, by the way, I'll probably have about seven or eight different resources through the summer. And I'll mention a book. I'll tell you a little bit about it. It may be something if that particular topic is of interest to you. You might want to grab the book. I'll have one that I'll recommend here in a minute. But Michael Kruger uh, has summarized early historic Christian faith by examining these early documents. We're talking first century, second century. And it's, it's, it's known by a Latin phrase, regula fide, or rule of faith. What are, the, what are the, 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 the guardrails, if you will, of what is the, the historic Christian faith? And he has taken from these early church creeds, these early church confessions, and he's boiled it down to seven statements. Let me give them to you. First one is this. There is one God the creator of heaven and earth. Obviously, yes, comes from God's word. 
but it was also affirmed in the earliest of days within the, the Christian church. Secondly, this same God spoke. He spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament regarding the coming Messiah. Number three, Jesus is the Son of God, born from the seed of David through the Virgin Mary. And so we see that, that statement two connects to statement three, right? That Jesus is the fulfillment of that messianic promise. Number four, Jesus is the creator of all things who came into the world, God in flesh. Do you see the doctrines that are coming out, oozing out, even from just that one statement? Well, in a little bit, when we begin to, to look at some of the tenets of the progressive Christian faith, we'll make some comparisons. So, so look at these and see them. Number five, Jesus came to bring salvation and redemption for those who believe in him. Number six, Jesus physically suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised bodily from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Strong statements about who Christ is. Number seven, Jesus will return again to judge the world. Again, we have to start with this as the foundation. We need to be sure of what the historic Christian faith is, what the gospel is. We want our young people to know the gospel, to know that it's, it's, it's for them, for, for their own lives, so that they can know Christ, that they can find salvation. But it's also so that they can be equipped to navigate environments that are opposed to this. As I said a minute ago, some of those environments happen in the corridors of churches today. This is our starting point. The definition of historic Christian faith. Then we can make the comparisons. Look again at Jude, the end of verse 3. The faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Notice that, that very definitive language. It's not a faith that is developing over time. It is a finished faith once for all. And so he's, he's being very clear that it does not change. Even when the cultural landscape changes, truth, absolute truth, is constant. We do not change the message. We articulate the message even in the face of, of change. Now, it may mean that as we understand the, the questions or the, the topics that are of concern in the cultural culture around us, that we want to be able to listen and we want to be able to engage and approach. So sometimes those methods and those dialogues may be different, but it's not a different message. It's the same message. We see that there's a phrase here that says we are to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. And I just can't get past that idea. Delivered. There's something that was delivered. If you are a Christ follower, someone delivered the gospel to you. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a combination of people that were, that were, that were sharing and modeling and delivering the gospel to you. It doesn't say that, that you wrote what was given, that you developed it. No, it was delivered to you. It was given to you. And so we see that there is a trust, a sacred trust that we have each received. Think of it this way. Someone, someone transmitted the gospel to you. And now you have the responsibility, and it's really twofold, 
of both guarding that sacred trust and sharing it with others. It's interesting to think that from generation to generation, going all the way back to the days of the apostles, the historic Christian faith has been preserved. It has gone from generation to generation to generation to the time and place in which we were able to hear it, to believe it, and to receive it. What a gift. What a gift that we have this anchor, this truth. And yet, we're called to guard it so that it doesn't get changed or twisted, right? So that way it maintains its integrity. But it's not the kind of guarding like we put it in a safety deposit box that no one can get to because at the same time, we're to do what? We're to give it away. We're to, we're to ensure that others hear it. This world right now is broken. It is in chaos. It is in confusion. It is crying out for truth and hope and peace. And I will, I will tell you what I think. Jesus is the answer. There is a world out there that needs Christ. And so, no, we, we don't guard it from the standpoint of keeping it to ourselves. We guard it for the integrity of the message. But then we, we are to share that message far and wide. Folks, this is not a time of retreat. It's not. There's just evidence out there that the, that the world is in desperate need of truth. And it's up to us. It's up to us. I remember the words that Paul told Timothy. Remember what he said in 1 Timothy 6? He said, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have done what? Departed from the faith. We see that. Some of us know that from personal experience, seeing the, the heartbreaking decision of people that decide to, to no longer follow Christ, no longer be a part of, of a church, no longer hold and cling to Him. As the world becomes more hostile to the biblical gospel, our calling and mission, yeah, it will get more difficult because the, we, for, for, for probably generations, holding to a biblical faith, have found that, that many in the culture would have agreed with us. In fact, the majority would have. And when you're in part of the majority opinion, things aren't as difficult. But when things change and things flip, and all of a sudden, what you hold to in terms of ethics or morality or truth is no longer in the majority what happens. You see the opposition head on. And just look and see all the ways that, that the... That the, that the Christian message and the faith and, and, and what that leads us to in determining what is right and what is wrong and sexual ethics and, and all these kinds of things, how it can turn so quickly. I believe that this means our message is even more urgent. More urgent. Look at verse 4 of Jude. Let's pick back up. He says, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago, have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So Judas is saying to the readers, you've got to guard the sacred deposit, and yet at the same time you have to be on guard because they've come in by stealth. Now, this was written 
long ago. But doesn't it read like it was written for today? I mean, just the beautiful, timeless truths of God's word that are still, still speaking. They are alive for us. Well, our first point was we must contend earnestly for the faith. Our second point related to our sacred duty is we must identify when the truth is being distorted and denied. Again, every generation of believers has had to deal with this at some level and in some way. We've always got to be on guard against a message that has been changed into a different message because a different message becomes a different gospel, a gospel that doesn't save, a gospel that doesn't redeem. Now, I know that there is this, this tension because who doesn't want what they believe to be accepted by others, right? It's part of human nature. Who of us doesn't want to believe that our message and that our belief should be relevant to the days that we live in? And yes, in so many ways it should. But if our desire to be accepted or to be viewed as relevant becomes the ultimate goal, what happens then? The only thing that can happen, our message must change to adapt. That's where the understanding of progressive Christianity comes into play. Let me make a book recommendation. This is a book uh, by Hillary Morgan Ferrer, maybe Ferrar, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right, and uh, it's got a great title, Mama Bear Apologetics, and uh, you can just think of the imagery there. Lots of co-authors, all of them moms, apologists, but what's their concern? They are tired of seeing their children and grandchildren growing up in the church and doing what? Departing. They're tired of that. They says they're, they're, they're sounding the clarion call and have put together 16 chapters to say, here's what we need. And boy, it's beautifully written. It's articulate. Lots of topics. Um, one of the co-authors of chapter one is a member of our church, Julie Los. She, she co-authored chapter one and she wrote the ending of all 16 chapters because they all they all end in a, in a beautiful prayer of commitment. And Julie wrote that. And, uh, and we'll, I'll share more about that in a minute. But, but in this book, Elisa Childers is one of the authors. She wrote a couple of chapters, including chapter 15 on the progressive church. Now, you may recall that over the spring, we offered a class on progressive Christianity on Wednesday nights. We went through her book, Another Gospel. And that, that's a book that I will also recommend. Uh, if you're interested in, in what is happening in the world of, of the progressive church. We did a Zoom call with her live. We had her on the big screen here. She was at her home in Tennessee, and she was engaging with us in the class, as well as our students in student ministry. And she was sharing her own experience, being raised in the church, uh, one who, uh, who was a part of uh, the contemporary Christian music world for a while, and a group called Zoe Girl. And how when she settled in Nashville, she began attending a church that she came to understand was a progressive Christianity church led by a pastor who ultimately would, would tell her that he was a hopeful agnostic. Yeah, the pastor of the church, a hopeful agnostic, bringing and calling into question everything that she had ever believed about the Christian faith, week after week after week. Finally, she understood what was happening, and she had to, she had to uh, obviously make a change, right, and find a, find a solid church. But in doing all of that research, 
she has written extensively because she herself had been pulled into it. She wants to make sure others are aware of what is happening in the church culture around us today. So what she has done in chapter 15 of this book is she's given five key beliefs of progressive Christianity. As I read through these, and I know I got to do it quickly, I want you to see how they compare or contrast to the beliefs we read earlier from the rule of faith, the historic Christian faith. Here's the first one. There is a rejection of the exclusivity of Christianity that Jesus is the only way to God. That is one of the fundamental beliefs of progressive Christianity. In fact, we're going to tackle that as one of our questions this summer because that's, that's a big one that, 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 that uh, rises up. Secondly, there is a rejection of the atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Many of the leaders in the progressive uh, Christian faith will even use statements to try to describe the cross and say, we can't follow a God who would allow his own son to be sacrificed. They even refer to it as cosmic child abuse. Now, last week we took the Lord's Supper. We participated in an ordinance of the church. We, we, we looked back and thought that, that, that throughout history, the lamb had been provided as a sacrifice. It was foreshadowing the lamb of God who would come and lay down his life to rescue us, redeem us from sin and death. And these are precious truths to us. And yet, the progressive church will take the Lord's Supper and have entirely different meaning. In fact, one of the, the leaders, Rob Bell, in, the, in that movement, as he was sharing the Lord's table with the congregation, said that we do this to realize that there is common humanity that we share that trumps any of the ways we have cooked up to divide ourselves. We pass the elements specifically to heighten our senses to our bonds with our brothers and sisters in our shared humanity. So all this emphasis on, on what we have in common without mentioning anything about the blood of Jesus, sin or sacrifice or even salvation. And so you see that that's where it can be very tricky for someone to go into a church and see them uh, observing the Lord's Supper. But then as you listen, you think, well, wait a minute, that's it's really not at all what the Bible teaches about it. Number three, a lowered view of Scripture. I've touched on this one before. Obviously, uh, Christians have, have, have always viewed the Bible as inspired, as authoritative, as sufficient, as God-breathed, inspired Word of God. And yet today, there is a greater desire among the progressive Christians to, to say, well, let's look at... At, uh, at our own truth. Let's look at what is the, think, the thinking of the day. Because we've learned a lot in, 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 in modernism or postmodernism. There's a lot we can learn. We can revise. And so this idea of what, what the culture, what we are thinking or feeling becomes the, the absolute, not the Word of God. And what happens is we can easily make God into our own image instead of the other way around. I've told you before that there was a doctrine that was very prevalent even when I was in seminary, and it's, it's an ancient one, but the idea that the Bible is truth. But what they mean by it is that the Bible contains truth. Not all of the Bible is truth, but it contains truth. And they even use a, a, an image like shucking an ear of corn and saying, here's a kernel. And if you look hard enough in the Bible, you will find that kernel of truth. 
Well, well, who becomes authoritative then? Right, it's the, it's, 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 it's the, the person that's reading it say, ah, oh, this is true and that's not. This is relevant, that's not. Well, that's not. That's not the historic Christian faith. We view the Bible as authoritative. Number four, a redefining of words. Um, she calls this linguistic theft. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but basically using some of the same words that we would use, but attaching different meanings to them. And one of the examples that she gives is, you know, we, we look to God's word and we, we read about heaven and hell and we read about the afterlife and we, we take it for what it says. And that others have taken some of these same words like hell and say, okay, it's more figurative. Hell is really the consequences that you deserve when you make a bad choice. Well, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says about it. But this softening, this, this changing, this redefining of words is what we've got to be careful Number five, a focus on social justice. It's not meant to say that as Christians, we don't recognize those that are in need. We do. We want to bring love and justice to those who are oppressed. Just think of the ministry of Jesus. He was always caring for the outcast, the one that was looked down upon, the one that was in need, the one that was scorned or the one that was sick. He was always there ready. And so we, we pattern ministries after that. But what the world means by social justice today is different. It's a, it's a culturally adapted term that at times can, can, can promote lifestyles that are in contradiction to the Word of God. And yet, there are some progressive pastors like John Pavlovitz that says, we believe that social justice is the heart of the gospel. Really? Social justice? That's the heart of the gospel? I mean, see the shift there. Now, it may, it may sound friendly, it may sound open and inviting, but, but if it's changing what the gospel is, we are in trouble. David Young, author of a book called A Grand Illusion, he said, the changes progressivism makes to the Christian faith render the faith not only unbiblical and unorthodox, but also ultimately unchristian. Progressivism is actually just one more version of the same cultural accommodation that has plagued God's people from the very beginning. So there's, that's a warning there that as we, as we seek to answer this question today that we ultimately have to ask, well, what is it that they are teaching and believing? Elisa Childers gives another description. She says, progressive Christians view the Bible as primarily a human book and emphasize personal conscience and practices rather than certainty and beliefs. In fact, there are arguments within the progressive Christian movement that, that you aren't trying to arrive at certainty, that it's better just to have ambiguity. She goes on to say they are also very open to redefining, reinterpreting, or even rejecting essential doctrines of the faith, like the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, and his bodily resurrection. Those were some that came out of the rule of faith we read earlier. So there's, there's a change. Again, so desperate to fit into the culture, it has to keep changing. And you, we just have to realize that, that if a culture is, 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 is humanistic and godless, we shouldn't think that our message is going to be part of their message. We are always going to be on the outside. Because ours isn't a humanistic, godless message. It's, it's filled with God. It's filled with faith. Remember the ex-evangelicals I referenced earlier? There's a lot of pressure for people to, to deconstruct their faith. Have you heard that phrase lately? Deconstruct? 
There are people that were even prominent church or ministry leaders who have stepped away recently. There's pressure being put on people of faith to acquiesce and change with the time. Some of it is those 60% that have left, right? But some of them are, are people that, 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 whose names you'll recognize. Let me share a few examples. Maybe you remember a book that was written in the late 90s by an author, Joshua Harris. A very popular Christian book. He went on to serve at a large church in Maryland, very doctrinally sound church. And a few years ago, he left the faith. He divorced his wife. He publicly stated that he changed many views on sexual ethics and morality and basically apologized for anything that he'd ever written or said. And that sent shockwaves through the Christian community, especially even within the homeschool community, because he'd written so many books that, that related even to, uh, to that. Well, in May of this year, uh, last month, uh, Kevin Max, a Christian singer who was once with a music group known as DC Talk, maybe some of you remember that group, they filled arenas all across the country, uh, contemporary Christian, Christian music. Well, he was one of the three band members that, you know, had all kinds of, of lyrics and music about faith. Well, he too is now calling himself an ex-evangelical, that ex-evangelical. Maybe for some of you that like to watch uh, YouTube, maybe you've heard the guys Rhett and Link. Anybody heard Rhett and Link? I've watched some of their videos. These guys are really funny. They're very creative. And when they first started doing their YouTube videos, which I think are watched by millions of, of young people, um, you know, they were, they, were, they, were, they were clear about their faith. They, they, they were clear that they, they not only were, were Christians, they had served as missionaries with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. What have they done? They've apostatized. They've walked away from the faith altogether. Now, I mention this to you to say this is what is happening out in the world today. And that's why we can't ignore the tough questions. Because many of them, in these three cases, they struggle with trying to reconcile the current culture's view of sexual ethics with the Word of God's view of sexual ethics, the design for gender and sexuality. We have, some people say, well, is, that really just a, uh, is that really an issue? Why don't you just let people do what they want to do? Blah, blah, blah. Well, it changes the way people think, and it changes the, whether or not they would trust God's Word as authoritative. And here are some examples of people that just couldn't make it work, walked away. Progressive Christianity is having an impact. And for many of our young people, when they grow up and they leave this church and they go off to college and begin looking for a church, or they, they move away and begin to look for a church in their community, the question I ask you today is, will they, will they be able to identify what is a church of the historic Christian faith versus one of this new progressive faith? Because I don't know about you all, but I feel a pressing, weighty responsibility. And I'm sure Tim Montgomery feels it like I do that we are preparing and equipping so that our young people don't become part of these statistics. Yes, church family, this is vital. But it's not a reason for retreat, right? It's a reason for engagement. It's a reason for preparing and, and working through a series like this over the summer and, and beyond. I know there's more that what we'll be able to accomplish just in, in a few, uh, few months. But it's vital 
that we clearly proclaim the true faith of the gospel. May we guard this sacred deposit and may we faithfully pass it along to the next generation. And I just want to speak to the next generation for a minute. If there is a question that is burning in your soul and you're just struggling to try to reconcile the question that is, is being raised or that you're seeing on social media or that you have with uh, discussions of friends and you're just not sure how to reconcile, would you, would you let me know what that question is? I promise you, I won't, I won't embarrass you. There's a chance I won't maybe even know the answer off the top of my head, right? I might have to, to do a little work to, to help find the answer. But I just want you to know it's important to me. And it might make the series, right? Maybe it's something that we need to, to look at together. But let's, let's, let's not suppress the questions. Let's, let's have an environment where we're open to that. Let's walk through those questions together so that hopefully we can provide some answers. Well, I want to close the message with one more quote uh, from the Mama Bear Apologetics book. And this quote is from uh, a member of our church, Julie Lose, one of the co-authors. She writes this worded and formed as a prayer. She says, God, I thank you that we have an intellectual faith with historical veracity, truth, and proven principles. I am in awe of the way that Christian values have been a force for good in the world. Thank you for the atonement, the authority of the Bible, the gift and promise of heaven. Thank you for the creeds and doctrines that have encapsulated and preserved through the centuries the orthodox tenets of the faith. Because of your unchanging nature and perfect work, Nothing new is needed, amen, with regard to your precepts, promises, and principles. Man, she is right on, isn't she? There's the answer right there to the question of whether or not we really need this progressive form, if you will, of Christianity. Church family, this is not a day to be discouraged and give up. I know the tone's kind of heavy. I apologize for that. But, but it's important, isn't it? It's vital. We're talking about issues that are eternally significant and will even impact some who are with us right now. Would you bow with me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that the faith which has been handed down and delivered to us is a faith that is true, a faith that is sufficient, a faith that is valuable for every generation. God, I pray that you will help us as a church to lovingly and winsomely and yet definitively guard the sacred trust. God, help us to recognize that it is the answer. It's what is needed today. Yes, we know it may be rejected by many, but Lord, you've given us that call to go and make disciples, to take the words of truth, the words of your gospel to those right now that are desperately needing it. Lord, we believe that your gospel changes lives. And we can give evidence of the change that you have made in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for salvation. 
We thank you for redemption. God, we pray that these would be truths that would be embraced and understood by the young people of our church. That God, you would draw them to you, that you would equip them and, and allow them to have a firm and settled faith. God, I pray for their parents and grandparents who continue to come alongside. I pray for our student ministry and children's ministry and others, Lord, that are, that are surrounding them in this hour. Father, we thank you that we can leave this service today and walk out into the world with assurance. Assurance not only of what is true, but assurance also that you are with us. That you are there. will never leave us or forsake us. So God, take your word today. As Trey prayed earlier, we pray again, Lord, may you help us to not only be hearers, but may we be doers of your word and for your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.